0: I told you last week that in my mind I thought I could preach Psalm 17 and 18 together. Uh, that didn't happen. But, uh, but the reason is, is because Psalm 17 is the cry of despair. David is calling to his father to help him, to deliver him. And Psalm 18 is the victory song, the thanksgiving song, the song of the king in response to God's answer to his prayer. How often do we pray prayers? Now you think about this, because I, I had to deal with this all week in my own heart. Okay, so now I want you to deal with it. How many times do you pray, and God answers the prayer, and you act as if it was just a normal course of things? Nobody else is guilty of that. How many times do you pray fervently for something? For a long time. And then God does it and you're just like, well that was good. On to the next thing. I want you to think, the, the psalm in which David cries out to God is 15 verses. And his response to God's answer is 50 verses. David not only prayed fervently, but when God answered, he didn't ascribe it off to natural circumstances. He didn't say, oh, well, that happened because I'm such a good warrior, and I'm such a good planner, I'm such a good administrator, I have such good soldiers around me. My men are better than Saul's men. No. When he was delivered from the hand of Saul, he looked to heaven and said, my deliverer is my rock. And he didn't just say in a sentence, he said in 50 verses. What an amazing heart of love towards God. What you see is not only a a view of God as my Santa Claus or even as my daddy or my granddaddy who gives me the things I need, but you see the heart of a man who understands the king of the universe has responded to him and he's overwhelmed by it. And confession time, often I act like, well, that's what God ought to do. He ought to answer me when I pray. I'm important. That's second to sinfulness that's inside of us. And David is an example to us of reveling in God's goodness and in his mercy. The title of this psalm, I told you earlier, I'm going to tell you again, you're going to hear it probably again before we're done with this series. I believe the titles, the little words, at least if you have an ESV or New American Standard or New King James, and I'm not sure the King James probably also has it. Um, the NIV might also, but I know in the major translations that the, the you see the uh, the the prescript to the psalm. That's in, I believe that to be inspired. I believe that what God did is He inspired. Whether it was the writer of the Psalter of the psalm or those who compiled the Psalter, He even moved in their heart to give us these titles. I'm not talking about the dark bold. That's that's the editor of your text your English text. I'm talking about the little prescript there. And this is the longest, the second, excuse me, the second longest prescript that we get. It's very descriptive. Look what it says. To the choir master, in other words, it's supposed to be sung in public worship, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said... Why is that important? Because this psalm doesn't just come to us here. I want you to hold your place in Psalm 50 and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 22. The psalm we're going to look at today is the details of it are given to us in 2 Samuel chapter 22. There's a debate as to whether the, Psalter was, the psalm in the Psalter was written first or the chapter in 2 Samuel 22 was written first. I think that's easy to sum up. You know how? Because David wrote the psalm. He didn't write, as far as we know, we we don't think he wrote 2 Samuel. So I think the writer of 2 Samuel was copying David. Alright? He was just retelling it. At the very least, he was copying the song. Look what he says in Psalm 20, I mean, 2 Samuel 22. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him. You understand why I think the prescripts are inspired. It came right out of this text, didn't it? On the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said. It's the same thing, isn't it? And then it goes into this psalm. Not identically. This is a historical text. This is a poetry text. It's not identical, but when you compare the two, it's amazing uh, because it fills in details for us. So I'm not going to, both these texts are very long. I'm not going to spend all my time reading these texts to you. I'm going to hopefully preach a sermon that will capture the meaning of them. Psalm 18, I believe, has four main movements and two interludes. Has four main movements, four main groups of verses, four main things that center around this one thing, the deliverance of God. For for David and for his people, and it has two interludes, two historical interludes in there. First of all, the first thing we see is that the Lord is my rock. The Lord is my rock. Verses 1 through 3 say, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Here we see the love of David flowing over into a right praise of God, who is his rock. That's the overwhelming theme of verse 2. You see it twice, repeated. The Lord is my rock, And then again in in verse 2 he says, The Lord is my rock. He's driving home the point that the protection that he has in life, the hope that he has of deliverance, the hope that he has of survival in this human life, the existence of this human life is God himself. David doesn't presume on life. He takes life as a gift. It comes from God. He doesn't presume on victory. He takes victory as a gift. From God. He doesn't presume on even the kingship that he has been given and trusted by God as if, well, I'm guaranteed to live longer. He takes it as a gift from the hand of God. How do we know that? Look at verse 2. The Lord, the love of, of, of David for God, boils over into this praise. The Lord is my rock. In the ancient day, a rock was a place for protection. You could get behind it. You could get under it. You could get inside of it. We we have all of these pictures here. The Lord is my rock. We know that David ran from Saul into the wilderness. Now, he was in some fortresses at times at Adullam and some other places in the cave called a fortress. But often, he was just in open field, open country in the promised land. And he would just find a rock. And like a, a rock badger, he would just bury up in it probably. He saw it as his protection, his camouflage, his guard. Okay? The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. All of these center around the idea that God is the one who gave him victory over Saul. He never grasped that pridefully and says, it's me. He says it's God. Then he goes into something here even more intimate. He's my shield and the horn of my salvation. In the battlefield context that David's writing from, the shield was not this dinky Roman shield. Uh, it's, the Romans wouldn't appreciate dinky. It was, it, their shield was very good for what it was for. It was not only defensive, it was offensive. They wielded it. But the shield in the Hebrew day was a big shield. You've probably seen it on some of the movies. I don't, I'm not real good at movie titles and what scenes. I, they all run together for me. But you've seen them. They pitch a shield over the top and they get behind it. And the arrows of the enemy come in and hit that. We might call it a barricade. But this is the kind of shield. A big shield. Not a one-man shield even. A, a shield that would cover from over their heads to below their feet. And they could get under it. And several men would hold it. And it was a defensive shield. It protected from the attack. He says, if I hadn't had God, who is my shield, who is my rock, I would have been overwhelmed by my enemy. You see, such dependence comes from an understanding of who God is and how great He is. The Lord is my rock. And He's worthy of all my praise because it's through Him that I'm saved from my enemies. What a beautiful way that this psalm opens. The second theme is in verses 4 through 19. The Lord is my deliverer. Not only is He a defensive God who keeps the enemy's attacks from me, but He's also an offensive God who's attacking my enemies and delivering me from them. Verses 4 through 19 give us just a little bit of an idea here of what's going on. The cords of death encompassed me. And torrents of destruction assailed me. We're not certain of, the, of any historical uh, story necessarily, but we can understand that this is figurative speech. He's saying, "Hey, it's a torrent has come on me. A flood has come on me from Saul, and I'm bound—maybe bound, maybe bound physically. We don't know, but bound figuratively to his his uh, king." He was his king's servant, you remember. So he's bound. This tyrannical leader is trying to kill him. And we know from history that David didn't shirk his responsibility. I mean, the leader's gone off the tracks. He's gone crazy, right? A good enough excuse for any good general to say, hey, the president's lost his mind. We're we're, we're pulling rank here. Let's Let's all just pull in here and get rid of this guy. He's crazy. I mean, David would have probably had support in that kind of a move. But because he's bound to Saul as his servant, and because he's bound of his oath to God, and the respect for the king of Israel, he's bound. And even though the flood of, of attacks comes against him, he's, he's not willing to break those cords. The cords of Sheol, the grave, entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. I mean, he's near to death The picture he's painting for us, he's near to death. And even in this, he will be faithful. He will be faithful. He won't rise up and defend himself. 2 Samuel 22 says that David wouldn't raise his hand against Saul. And we know that's true, don't we? Saul was asleep and David was standing at his own side. The whole camp's asleep. David's standing there. He could have broken the cords he could have cut his head off. His servant even said, Now's the time. Do it. Far be it from me to lift my hand against the servant of the Lord. And he left. He took with him his cloak so he could know I was here and I could have had you, but I didn't. But he wouldn't raise his hand. But why? Even in death, even if it cost me my life, I will be faithful. You see here foreshadowing of what's called on the New Testament believer. Even when we are faithless, what? God is faithful. And we see David being faithful. Why? I would tie it to the first three verses. Because God has been faithful to him. He will be faithful to his call. It's going to cost you your life, David. I'm going to be faithful. What resolve in the face of... Of attack and death, the Lord is my deliverer. Go on down in the in the passage here, and I want to break some things down for you. Verses seven through eleven. Look at the language here. He draws this language as far as we know. Again, in David's life, this did not happen. Okay, so what is he doing here? Look at verses 7-11. through 11. The earth reeled and rocked and the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark water. What? Oh, David draws on the the image of Sinai, the historical event that happened in Sinai. When did God rend the heavens? And when did God shake the foundations of the mountain? And when did God arise from his throne and come on the wings of cherubs? When did that happen? When he gave the law to his people, when he made Israel a covenant people, when he formed them as a nation, that's when it happened. David is rooting his deliverance on God's hand to the event in Sinai because he sees that event and says, just as God answered Moses in that day, just as God heard his prayers and came and attended to him, he has heard my prayer and he's come and attended to me. David possessed a historical faith. It was not something new. It was old. David rooted it in the past. He looked back at the deliverance of God of his people from Egypt across the Red Sea through the lack of food, the lack of water to the mountain, the foot of the mountain when God came down and shook the mountain and came down in dark clouds of darkness and came down on the wings of a cherub. This is the language of Exodus. Why is David pulling it into his prayer of deliverance? Because he has a historical faith that points back and says, God is doing this not because of me in this section. He says it's not because of me. It's because God is faithful to his people. He expected God to deliver him. Why? Not because he was some great guy that deserved deliverance, but because God is faithful. And so in this section on the deliverance that God brings, he's going back historically. Now he does it again in 12 through 14. Look what he says. Out of the brightness of before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. He's tying his deliverance again to a historical event. When is this? The conquering of the promised land. David says, Just like God heard the prayers of Moses and the people in his day, and he came down to the mountain, and the mountain shook, and he came in dark clouds, and he delivered to us the law and the covenant that we would be his people and he would be our God, he was faithful also to deliver them into the promised land. And this is what he did. Now, in the historical text of Joshua, we're told that God went before them with bees and hornets and drove them out before him. But David, notice, takes that language and figuratively says God rains down hailstone on these people and kills them for them. In other words, Israel didn't conquer the promised land. Who conquered the promised land? God conquered the promised land. Israel didn't say our God is Jehovah and this is God's law and we will follow God's law. They didn't do what the idolaters did in their day and make a God. No, God heard their prayer and came down and made a covenant with them. And David says, in my distress, I'm praying the same way. Deliver me. He has a historical faith. He has a faith grounded in the faithfulness of God, which inspires him to be faithful to the covenant. So we have this historical event that's taking place most Likely in reference to the conquering of the southern half of the land, which was the most entrenched and the most guarded by the Philistines and others who encamped in those places, and the Canaanites were rooted out by God. Now, verses 15 through 19, he analyzes or he he uh, prays here. He shows how his prayer was answered. He analyzes the answer of God to his prayer the channels of the sea were the, the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your real rebuke o lord at the blast of the breath of your nostrils he sent from on high he took me he drew me out of many waters he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me for they were too mighty for me this looks back to chapter uh, psalm 17 They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This is a a recounting of the answer of God's prayer. I mean, of of David's prayer to God in Psalm 17. He says, God answered me. Listen, let me tell you. You say, what does that matter to me? I live in the 21st century. We have cell phones and we have an instant message and we have Twitter and we have Facebook. And God doesn't have any of those things. What does this matter to me? Children, listen. The God of the universe hears your prayer. And what David pictures is the God of the universe rising to action on his behalf. And he says, it didn't just happen for me. It happened for Moses and the children of Israel in their day. It happened for Joshua and the children of Israel in the day of the conquer of the land of Canaan. And it has happened for me. And the assumption of the psalmist is, it will happen for you. If you are His people and He is your God, He will deliver you. If you are His people and He is your God, He will answer your prayer. He will deliver you. Now, it didn't always happen the way David, I'm sure, envisioned it. Okay? I'm not certain that David envisioned... Saul and his servant killing themselves as deliverers. I, I, I don't think he had some kind of prophetic vision, this is going to go down. At all. I don't think when David later faced Absalom as his attacker, his own son, I don't think he envisioned Joab chasing him in a, in a garden and him beheading himself on, on a limb hitting himself and strangling himself, and Joab finished. I don't think he envisioned that, but David knew this. I don't know how God will deliver me. I don't know how God will accomplish his task in me, but he will do it. Why? Because he's faithful. He had a historical. That's why it's so important that you understand your faith isn't yours. It's God giving it to you, and it's the same faith that the saints have had back to Genesis. It's not a new faith. It's the same faith. So that you can pray like David and say, God, you delivered the people in in Moses' day. You delivered the people in Joshua's day. You delivered David in his day. You delivered Peter and Paul and Silas and Timothy. And you worked in your church through the fathers and through the the reformers and through the great evangelists of the 1900s. And you will work for me. It's It's not a private faith that we have. It's a public historical faith that we have. Listen, the reason we often feel overwhelmed when our enemies attack us is because we think we're all alone. Hebrews says there's a great cloud of witnesses to the faith that you have. Hold that faith. Let that faith hold you. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Don't say God's not hearing me, so I'm just going to go my own way. Do what David did and recount God's goodness historically. And that's why it's so important, children, that you pick up your Bible and read. You can't know what God has done for His people unless you make yourself familiar with it. It is sad to me, and it's getting worse. It's sad to me, I'm not angry about it, I'm broken about it, of how ignorant our adults, children, can be of the faith that we say we possess. children, don't be like that. You have a whole life in front of you. There's reading plans. There's your mom and your dad. There's Sunday school classes. Avail yourself of the Bible and read it and ingest it and learn it now. Not when you're 30. Not when you're 40. Not when you're 50. Not when your dad dies. Not when your mom gets Alzheimer's. Not when your marriage falls apart. Not when your child dies dramatically and suddenly. Don't start reading it then Read it now. Why? Because then your enemy's on you. And you're not behind the shield. You're standing out in the battlefield by yourself getting hit with the attacks of the enemy. Get behind it before your life falls apart. Get behind and under and in the rock now because the storm's coming. You see? That's the prayer we're looking at. That's the praise that we're looking at. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my deliverer. Now we have an interlude that takes place from verses 20 to 24, okay? And it's a historical interlude. This, this I believe, uh, is not symbolic in any way. This is exactly the way it happened. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. In other words, I claimed Him as my God. He is my God. I'm His, his and my righteousness is not my righteousness that saves me, but it's the righteousness in obedience to him that he sees. And according to my cleanness and my, of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. That's going to come in Psalm 19, the way he loved God's word, see. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. God's decrees were in front of me, and God's statutes were in front of me, and I kept them. I walked in them. Again, we see the blessed man being laid out. David saying, I am that blessed man. I have walked in God's ways. I did not put them away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness of my hands in his sight. So he recounts, this is, why did God deliver me? The person hearing this song song gets to the interlude between the two first stanzas and says, Why in their mind, why is God doing this? Because I followed his ways, David says. Because he has saved me and he has called me and he has put me in his family. Now I walk according to his, his decrees. And I treasure his statutes. Again, Psalm 19, we're going to see it a whole psalm on how David loved God's word. He says, look, that is why God looked at me in this immediate moment of time when I'm under attack and delivered me, was because I was his. And I showed that I was his. As Jesus says, I will, you will show your love for me by obeying my commandments. David showed himself to be belonging to God. How? By obeying his commandments. The third theme here in the passage is it found in 25 through 29. The Lord, the theme is that the Lord rewards righteousness. Now David gives a very uh, succinct interlude. Why did God deliver David? Because I followed his statutes and I loved his decrees. And then he says, this not only something that happened for me, but it's something that happens for God's people. Verses 25 through 29. The Lord rewards righteousness. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. In other words, the Im- It's it's David saying, in the Old Testament context, exactly what Paul said in the New Testament, exactly what James said in the New Testament. He says, listen, God's grace is in me. How do I know God's grace is in me? Because of his grace, I work harder than everyone else around me. But hold on a minute before you give me a lot of praise for me working. It's not me that's working, it's the grace of God in me working. It's the same interchange that's happening in this text. What does he say? I'm clean. I'm righteous. I stand before God pure. But hold on a minute. God did that in me. I didn't do that in me. God did that in me. And it's his work in me that causes me to work. It's a beautiful working out of salvation happening here for David. He doesn't just sit back on verbal faith or mental faith and say, oh, I believe in the the God of Israel. Oh, yeah, he was a good God to Moses and Joshua, and so he'll be good to me. I don't have to worry about anything. No, he said God was faithful to Moses, and he called him to be faithful. God was faithful to Joshua, and he called him to be faithful. And God has been faithful to me, and he calls me to be faithful. And my faithfulness will come because he's been faithful to me and because his grace works in me. And so through the power of his grace, I run against a whole troop, and I jump over a a wall or a barricade. You see that? It's not that David's prideful in himself. He's saying, Look, God has worked in my life. God has made me this way. And it's caused me to work. And it's not just me working, it's the grace of God working in me. So we see in this the theme that God rewards righteousness. He watches over those who are his. Now, in this next interlude, this is our second interlude here because I think we, again, want the, he wants to keep the thing historical. He keeps grounding it back in what God did. On his behalf and how he played this out, verses 30 through, uh, through 45 are an interlude of history. What we see in the first stanza and second stanza is symbolic and poetic language to tell what God is doing. The interlude between 2 and 3 is to say this is why God did what he did. Then interlude, I mean uh, theme 3 or stanza 3 is, hey, God looks at the righteous and he loves them or he delivers them. Okay. And then four is the interlude to say, this is how he did it. it. In other words, he's tying in symbolic. Don't ever, don't ever do this. When you're reading a Psalm or when you're reading any text scripture, don't say, well, this sounds like symbolic language, so it doesn't matter. No. In the symbolism is a route to history. Symbolism is not just poetic language there's purpose for it it says it in a greater and grander way what God did for him he's not just talking to talk he's picturing for us what we can't picture how great a work this really was but it's rooted in history look at verse again verse 30 this God his way is perfect Or His way is blameless. You can't make a charge against this God. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer, and he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hand for war so that my arms can bend a bow for bronze. In other words, he started training David early in life. David sees his whole life as training ground for his kingship as a warrior against Saul and against his other enemies. God trained me. He prepared me. You have given me a shield of your salvation. He was called God's people, and so he found that call to be a source of deliverance and salvation. And your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. is action in the Scriptures. It's the great action text, huh? This is David overcoming his enemies, physically killing them, trampling them under his feet, running them through with swords. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under my feet. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Or you gave my, me my enemies' necks. In other words... God gave me the stealth. God gave me the ability to run against a troop, to jump over a wall, to thrust people through with swords, to kill them in surprise attacks. God gave me this upper hand. And those who hated me, I destroyed. So we have this uh, historical account of what's happening, how David conquered Saul and his other enemies. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. God doesn't hear the wicked. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You're, you you've made me the head of the nation. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cring- cringing uh, to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Now, David in this historical account gives us what we have in the historical books, an account of his great victories against his enemies. As a matter of fact, it became popular saying in Israel, Saul has killed his hundreds, but David has killed his thousands. And David's saying, look, the difference between Saul and I is not that I'm a great man and that I empower myself to this. The difference between Saul and I is the Spirit of God. The difference between Saul and I is God is my salvation and God is not Saul's salvation. That's the contrast we're seeing here. The difference is God didn't defend Saul and God did defend me. The difference is is Saul was not righteous according to God's precepts and statutes and I am. God's grace is the difference, not my ability. Oh, he trained me and he prepared me. But what overwhelmingly comes through this story is that God is the victor, and that's true in all of David's accounts. When, whenever Samuel tells us about uh, his conquer of um, Goliath, it's, it's people some of people's favorite Old Testament stories. I, it, I always chuckle now that we find in that a hero story about how great David is. I challenge you this afternoon when you or tonight go back and read that story with fresh eyes. Who is the hero of that story? It is not David. No. Kids, it's not that if you'll be eat your Wheaties and grow up and be strong, you can kill giants like David did. It's not that David was this great marksman. It's not that David was this brave soul. That's not the point of that story. When you read that story on its face and you read it with eyes looking for the real meaning, what, why is God recounting this story? Listen, there are, there are thousands of battle stories he could have put in the Bible. Why did he put this one in there? Because an evil, wicked idolater is challenging who? Not Israel. Who did he challenge? God. How do I know he challenged God? Because he said, if I whip your champion, you'll serve my God. If your champion whips me, we'll serve your God. That's a gauntlet thrown down in the face of Jehovah. That's in the text. I didn't make that up. Then David answers the call. Not As this great, brave soul. But he comes and says, somebody better stand up and do something about this. Y'all are all crouched down here. Why did not somebody already lopped this idolater's head off? How dare he talk about our God? I'll go fight him. They say, you're too young. You're just a babe. You're a man of war. You're a little child, a sheep keeper. He said, the same God. Hint. It's about God, not David. The same God that delivered me from the hand of the paw, of the bear, and the mouth of the lion will deliver me from this nasty, dirty, idolatry-filled Philistine. He'll deliver me. And then David runs on the battlefield and he kills this giant and he lops his head off and he announces it as not his victory, but the victory of Jehovah. The stories of the Old Testament are not about the people, they're about the God. And it's so helpful to us, listen to me. I'm not just telling you that to tell you. I'm telling you because your story is not about you, it's about God. Some of you can't figure out why you're going through what you're going through. It's because the story's about God, not about you. You say, well, I've been good and God took my marriage. And God took my business. And God destroyed everything I've ever tried to do. He must... I must be a failure. No, God's doing what God does. He's going to work to get you in a place where He gets all the glory. And so, He will strip away everything in this world so that we have nothing but Christ and we cling to Christ not in begrudging faith but in happy faith as Christ is enough. So He's glorified and not us. So that we don't die and they say, there goes a great man, but we die and they say, there goes a great God. He was with him all his days. That's the story of the historical account that David gives us here. God did it, not me. Finally, the Lord is to be praised. The culmination of this great song of praise and thanksgiving is praise. Now, foreigners lost heart, and they came trembling to David out of their fortresses. He conquered great armies. But what does he do immediately? The Lord lives. And blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. I won't sing the little kid song, but you remember that kid song, right? And This song's been made into a kid song. The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. Yeah, you know it. That's right. I said I wouldn't sing, but I did. Sorry. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God, what kind of God? The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence, Saul. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David, and to his offspring forever. This praise not only ends in praising David's God, but praising specifically, foreshadowing for us, Christ. This psalm is first of all about David, but primarily about Christ. This song is a song of praise of Jesus Christ. How do we know? Because he says this song and this praise will rise from David and from his offspring. Not not the kings and the lineage, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords forever. Ultimately, people, God didn't just deliver Moses and Joshua and David, but he delivered you and he delivered me. That's what David says. You say, all this historical... All this long sermon. To say what? To say that God was good to David? No. To say God is good to you. God is good to you. God has delivered you. You say, I've never been on a battlefield. Oh, yes, you have. You are every day. The Apostle Paul takes our text, and he does something fabulous with it. Take your Bible and turn to Romans. We're getting ready to close right here. Two texts in the New Testament that make this absolutely without question about Christ and His church that will praise God forever. Romans 15, begin in verse 8. This is the letter to the church at Rome filled with Gentiles and some Jews. And what does he write? For I tell you, That Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Where does that come from? Psalm 18 verse 49. Paul says Psalm 18 is not only about Israel And it's not only about David. It's primarily about Christ and His church, both Jew and Gentile. The Lord Christ became a servant to the Jews to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? And in order that what? The Gentiles might glorify God. What? Nobody reading Psalm 18. I challenge you. Nobody reading Psalm 18 thought that was the twist that was coming. That's exactly how Paul saw it. In other words, Psalm 18 is fulfilled when Christ comes. It, it has a historical setting, yes. We can look at it in its textual context, yes. But not just in the Old Testament. We must come to the New And in the New Testament, we see the fullness of the promises made in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ. And through Him, both Jews and Gentiles praising God in all the nations. That's what Paul says. And again it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. That's why the Jews hated Paul. They kept flogging him and stoning him and trying to kill him because he kept talking about these Gentiles. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Here he ends this great uh, understanding of Psalms like Psalm 1849 with saying Jesus' rule over the Gentiles will be done not by war, but by faith. They will come into believing in Him, and He will rule over them peacefully because Jesus will be their hope. So we can say, authoritatively from the Bible, God delivered Moses. He was faithful to Moses, and he made Moses a faithful man. God was faithful to Joshua, and he made Joshua a faithful man. God was faithful to David, and he made David a faithful man. And God was faithful to us, and he is making us faithful men and women of his covenant. Now, if you can't get excited about that, If you can't praise God, if you can't sing this song, you have a wet whistle. You have a a wick that isn't lit. You You need to pray that God inspires you for this. And it is this great hope of the deliverance of God told us in Romans 15 from Psalm 18 that Paul draws on in Ephesians 6 when he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. No, you're not fighting Saul and you're not fighting enemy armies. You're fighting Satan and you're fighting Satan's armies. And and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. With it, you will extinguish all the flaming darts of the the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. Sounds like Psalm 17. It's prayer that activates God's work on our behalf because it's His glory that's being sought, not our glory. So we call on Him because we are His ambassadors and we are carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth and we will face attack. You may be facing it now in a myriad of ways. Not physical, but spiritual. Depression, defeat. Your life may be in shambles. The hope that you have is in Christ alone. It's the only hope Moses had. It's the only hope Joshua had. It's the only hope David had. It's the only hope I have. It's Jesus Christ, the rock of my salvation. If you're trusting anything else today, I beg you, trust Him. Put your hope in Him. Don't turn to the schemes of this world. They will fail you. Don't turn to your family. It will fail you. Don't turn to your business. It will fail you. Don't turn to longevity of life. You will die. Do not put your hope in anything but the rock of your salvation. Hide in him. Let him be the shield of your life. And he will thwart off all your enemies. And that's a promise made to the patriarchs, to Moses, to Joshua, to David, and to us through Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is so amazing to see your word.